0: Last week we talked about Genesis uh, chapter 13, didn't we not? Huh? Yeah. And uh, we talked about how Abraham is a perfect man. He never doubts ever his entire life, right? Yeah. He never has moments of disobedience. He never questions God's plan. He never questions whether or not he's actually going to come through for him, right? No. Yeah. He has moments of deep doubt, doesn't he? And I shared with you a story of my own doubt in my own life at some point. And uh, that's that's okay to doubt, isn't it? It's okay to wonder if God's really going to come through for us sometimes. And I talked about how Abraham vocalizes that doubt sometimes. And then Abraham has moments of, of profound faith in God and obedience in God despite knowing what the future holds. And it seems like there's a chapter that's full of doubt. then there's a chapter that's full of faith and steadfastness and there's another chapter full of doubt again. It goes in like these, like, you know, every other chapter, it's, it's, it's interesting. And uh, we talked about, last week, um, Abraham and Lot, his nephew, begin to split up, don't they? They grow too large, to, and the land can't really sustain them. And Abraham gives Lot the choice, you can go this way, and I'll go that way, or you go that way, and I'll go this way. And then we talked about how Lot chose eastward, in the plains of the Jordan, and what two cities are over there? And then, and then, it says that Lot set up his tents. In which way was the door facing? Towards Sodom, towards the city. And you always posture your tent towards something that you know. The, the author of Genesis is saying he's posturing himself in a place of admiration towards these wicked cities. Something that's important to him. Yeah, and. You know, I always say when we see someone move to or in a city, bad things are about to happen. Um, we talked to how about how Genesis 13 is a prophetic picture of the gospel as well, and how there is language of resurrection in Genesis 13. There's language of um, of the ingathering of the exiles. There's language of ingathering of the nations, even from the four cardinal directions. And he says that. Um, your descendants will be as numerous as the specks of the afar, the dust of the earth, right? And we read Ezekiel and his valley of dry bones and talked about how it's kind of a fulfillment of that, prophetic fulfillment of that. But Abraham is such a pivotal character in the story, in the narrative of the Bible. And we're going to continue on with Genesis 14. We've got a lot of ground to cover, Genesis 14 and 15 today. We're going to read through it and comment as we go. So turning to the Bible is Genesis 14... And this works like a classroom. If you have a comment or a question, just shoot your hand up. I'll I'll do my best to answer that question or or entertain that comment. I just ask you to make it about the text, that's all. And at the end we'll try to save some time for questions and answers at the end. So it says in Genesis 14, when Amraphel was king of Shinar. Now Shinar is synonymous with Babylon. If you remember Shinar, it means the place of the teeth, the place of the intense, like kind of a cutthroat environment. Amraphel um, was the king of Shinar, Ariyot king of Elassar, Kadola Omer king of Elam, and Tidal king of the Goyim. They made war against Berah, which his name means in evil, he was king of Sodom, and against Shah, which his name means in wickedness, king of Amora, and Shinav, which means the father hater, the father hater. He was the king of Adma. This is a bad bunch of dudes, right? Ever, king of S- uh, Svo- Svoyim, and the, and the king of Bela, which is the same as Zoar. All the latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, where the Dead Sea is. This is, again, kind of a side note. This is one of the very few times where the Dead Sea is even mentioned anywhere in the Scripture. They had served Kedorla Omer for 12 years. They were like subjects to him. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Kedorla Omer and the kings with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtorot Karnaim and the Zuzim and Ham and the Imim and Shava Kiryatim. Kiriatayim, and the Hori and Seir, their mountain, all the way to Al Paran by the desert. Verse 7. Next they turned back, and they came to Ain Mishkat, which is the same as Kadesh, and they defeated all the country of the Malachi, and also the Emori, who live in Hatsatson, Tamar. Then the kings of Sodom, Amora, Adma, Svoyim, and Bala, that is Soar, they came out and arranged themselves for battle in the Sidin Valley against Dola Omer, the king of Elam, Tigdal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, the king of Adma, and Ariok, the king of Alassar. Four kings against the five. So what's being set up here is we're getting a little bit of military history here, okay? Um, we're uh, uh, We're getting some history, some narrative. And you might be thinking, where's Avram in this? He's coming in here in a little bit. Verse 10. Now, the Siddeen Valley was full of clay pits, or some translations you may have tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Amorah fled, some fled into these pits, while the rest fled up into the hills. And the victors took all the possessions of Sodom and Amorah and all of their food supply, and then they left. But as they left, they took Lot, Avram's brother's son, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. Now, what we see going on here. Is kings kings of this land doing what kings of this land do? What do kings of this land do? They subjugate and they uh, they uh, what's the, amass more power, all right? That's what kings of this land do. They consolidate more power, all right. They do this and they exercise this through the um, exercising of taxes, implementation of taxes of waging war and using people that don't really have that much of a vested interest in their expansion of power. They use them to send out to wage war. And then there's subjugation of human beings. And then all of that they use to to expand their land and territory. Okay? And all of this, even to this day, is done in defiance of the king of kings. Okay? This is still good. This is so... This reveals the timelessness in the message of the Bible that even 4,000 years ago, 3 or 4,000 years ago, the kings of this land were doing the same thing the kings are doing now. Now kings like to do this thing where they try to get the, the plebeians, the, you know, the, the people under their, under their subjugation, to try to buy into their schemes or try to get emotional about their schemes. Like, oh, this king, we got to go conquer this king or that king. But what's interesting, and we're going to see play out with the story of Avram, as believers and followers and subjects to the king of kings, we have to, to, to disengage from that and say, I'm not going to allow myself to be swept up into this fury and this frenzy. That I will see that there is a king over kings. And the kings of this land will always do what kings do, the pagans will always do what pagans do. I am a citizen of a higher kingdom. You got me? And we're going to see how Avram doesn't get involved in this, except when one of his kinsmen do. All right, so let's keep reading. Where are we at? Somebody throw me a verse. 13, 13? thank you, thank you. Someone who had escaped came and told Avram, the Hebrew. Now, this is notable here because it's the first time someone in the Bible is being called Ha-Ivri, the Hebrew. Ivri is it's a, it's actually a verb that means to cross over. Okay? And here he is, for the very first time anywhere in the Bible, being called the one who crossed over. And of course, his descendants from here on out would be called the Ivrim, the Hebrews, the Ivrim. And the language that the Hebrews speak is Ivrit, the Hebrew language, the crossing over language. It says, he told Avram, the Hebrew, the one who crossed over, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amori, the brother of Eshkol and the brother of Aner, all the families, uh, I'm sorry, all of them allies of Abram. Now, Abram, you've got to remember, is a wealthy man. He has got this large estate. He's probably got hundreds, if not thousands, of cattle and goats and sheep. He's probably got lots of money, lots of people who are working for him. He's, he's very much like, um, like one of those shows you see on TV with the, the rancher, and he's got like, this vast amount of land and cattle. But the difference being is that he is a righteous man. He's accumulated all of this stuff through means of righteousness. And he's even got, you'll see here, he's even got like his own personal army. All right, let's keep going. They're all allies of Avram. When Avram heard that his ahiv, or we can translate it as nephew, but he calls him like a brother, a kinsman, had been taken captive, he, now let's pause here. Remember, Lot was kind of a tag-along this whole time, right? We never have any account of Lot actually talking to God. He doesn't have these these deep, intimate conversations with God like Avram does. But Avram's kind of following, and finally Avram is like, you know what, your guys are quarreling with with my guys, let's part ways. And then Lot chooses to go towards Sodom and Amorah. He chooses the less the less desirable, the least spiritual route, let's say, which is a picture of becoming less dependent on God and more dependent on the people within those cities and the rulers of those cities. He's, he's, kind, of, um, he's kind of, I don't know, lackadaisical, in my mind anyways. I see him as kind of this lackadaisical individual who doesn't really have a close relationship with, with the God of heaven. So knowing all that, when it says here, when Avram heard that his, his nephew had been taken captive... Now, how Gabe Rutledge would finish that sentence might be different than how Avram finishes that sentence. Me, in my flesh, I might say, well, that's a consequence of his bad decisions. That's not my problem, right? Lot made some bad decisions in his life, and he needs to reap the consequences of those. And if he got taken captive with all his possessions, all his people, let that play out, right? That's his own fault. That's how Gabe Rutledge might end that sentence. How might you end that sentence? Let's see how Avram ends that sentence. It says that he leads out his trained men. He goes to battle for a lot. He's like, guys? And the Hebrew calls them the chanik. The chanik. It's actually the same root as Hanukkah, which means to dedicate. dedicate. The chanik are the dedicated ones, the mercenaries. They're like the ones that are so loyal to Avram that they will do whatever Avram says. 318 of them, yeah. But isn't Avram also acting upon what was considered almost sacrosanct back in those days of family loyalty? Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, was like that was like huge. That Yeah, yeah, family loyalty. You today, see that in the Middle East. People yeah. are going to die for their family. Yeah. They really are there for them. Yeah, 100%. when we were playing paintball, you know... Um, uh, I think I shot Faras in the first game. Uh oh. And um, I learned then that when you when you shoot an Arab man in paintball. You go for it. Faras came up. Faras came up. I think my battery just like. Let me see if I see Liz. I'm going to embarrass Faras. But Faras, if you can make sure this mic is on here, Faras came up to me and. Uh, and he just came up to me after the game, and he goes, Gabriel, I'm coming for you. Did he get you? Oh yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he ever did get me. Well, that's a long of But yeah, he says, Gabriel, I'm coming for you. I said, that's actually quite frightening. So I, I, uh, I played a very defensive game the rest of the day. But that, no, that was a lot of fun. But no, he's dedicated, right? And the, a hanik is like someone who's dedicated. And Avram, picture Avram saying, all right, guys, come here. i got 318 of you. You're like my, you're like my SEAL Team 6, right? I need you to go in there and my nephew Lot and all of his possessions were taken captive by these wicked kings. I need you to go in there. It's going to be a smash and grab kind of mission. You're going to get my family out of there. And it says, he led up his trained men. Now, did he just like send them out? Did he just like, go guys? What does it say here? That Avram led them out. Picture that. How old is Avram? He's, he's yeah, he's probably 80 to 100. I didn't calculate it leading up to this. But picture this man, Avram, going, he, he is going with 318 men on this smash-and-grab mission. And it says, These men had been born in his house, 318 of them. And he went, they went in pursuit as far as Dan, which is way up north. During the night, he and his servants divided his forces against them, and they attacked and pursued them all the way to Hovah, north of Damasek, which is way up in, like, in, in Syria. It says he recovered all the goods and brought back his nephew Lot with, uh, with their goods, together with all the women and all the other people. After his return from slaughtering Kedolah, Omer, and the kings with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheba Valley, also known as the King's Valley. So, Abraham is a man loyal to those even who are unloyal to him. Got me? Because we are kinspeople. We are, we are kinsmen. There's a movie um, came out, I think, in the, in the early 2000s, and in the story, the movie... Um, one of the main characters, um, they go—they're they're refugees. I'm not going to name them in the movie because I don't want you guys to watch it. they they, they go and they—they're refugees and they—they they, um, hide out in this barn of one of the refu- one of the—I'm um, sorry, not refugees—fugitives. Um, one of the fugitives' family's barn, and he knows that they're there, right? He's, he links up with them. He's like, "Can we sleep in your barn tonight? Because the cops are are chasing us, and they sleep in the barn. They're in a tight spot. In a tight spot yeah, and." Um, and uh, in the middle of the night, the the, ne- the cousin of the fugitive goes to the police and sells them out. And probably for some dollar amount, right, he gets this reward. And in the middle of the night, the three guys in the barn wake up and, uh, and the cops have surrounded the barn. And they're about to set the place on fire. And uh, they end up escaping, long story short. And they get back out into the swamps and the woods and they're back on the run again. And uh, they're sitting there and... Um, one of them like pulls out a pocket watch or something, and the cousin looks at him and goes, where did you get that from?" And he goes, "Well, I got it from so and so, your cousin." And he goes, "You stole from my kin, you know." And he jumps the guy and they get into this fist fight because he's like, "Your your kin sold us out, you know." But it's like this deep loyalty to his kin, you know. He's like, "You stole from my kin. How dare you do that?" But it, I don't know if Abraham has that. He didn't, he didn't steal from his kin, but. Avram, Avram has this deep loyalty to... Now, this is prophetic in a sense, because if you go to, Le- go to Leviticus 26, verse 6. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, verse 6. Leviticus 26, 6. He says, I would give you shalom in the land, if you are obedient. Okay, If you are obedient, I will give you shalom in the land. God is speaking to the people of Israel now. Abraham's descendants. He says, you will lie down to sleep unafraid of anyone, and I will rid the land of wild animals. The sword will not go through your land, and you will pursue your enemies, and they will fall before your sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before your sword. So, if you obey, if you, obey, you will get security. You will get security. So, sometimes we see, it's a very biblical principle, that peace comes through strength. Peace comes through strength. And we know that we too fight a spiritual battle. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it, but Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities Principalities and rulers of the right in the air. It's 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 an unseen realm that sometimes manifests itself in the physical realm. And sometimes we have to exhibit strength, physical strength, to achieve peace. But um, there's a quote that is actually an ancient... Chinese proverb that goes, It's better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in a war. And I think that that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that, that Avram is a warrior, it seems like, in a garden, right? And it's very appropriate for the story because the promised land is supposed to be like the new Garden of Eden. It's better to be, in, in other words, it's better to be prepared but know how to control that warrior tendency. Than to be unprepared and find yourself needing to use those warrior tendencies and not know how to use them. and Not even have them. Yeah. I was thinking, like, um, when we were in Israel, we went up to tell Dan, and it, the gate that yeah. they went through to rescue that is still there. Yeah, yeah. They, they dug it up and they found it, but it's still it's The still gate, there, yeah. So you can That's see neat. Where they were. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. So it says, um, he recovered all the goods. Okay, now we're going to verse 18. I was just kind of starting this new section, and we're going to learn about this new character called Malki Ma- It says, Malki verse 18. Malki which means the king that is righteous, the righteous king. He was the king of Shalem, which is more than likely ancient Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He brought out bread and wine. Now, this is important because bread and wine have always been symbols of the wide spectrum of sustenance the land provides. Okay? Bread and wine. They represent, they represent the sustenance of the land. Okay, and then the spectrum of that. But also, Yeshua says that he's the bread of life, right? And he is the vine, and we are his branches. That's talking about grapes and wine. But it says that Nukit Tzedek was a Kohen of El Elyon. Now, Kohen is a word, most literally it means one who wears um, like ritual garments. Okay? We translate it to a priest. And then Why would someone wear ritual garments? It's because they're representing someone else, right? Um, they're a connector between between the divine and humans. So it says that Melchizedek no, was a Kohen. He was someone who put on these ritual vestments, so to speak. But he was a connector between humanity and El Elyon, which is, translates to the God Most High, El Elyon. And, it, and also, this is the first very first usage we see of this word, Cohen, priest, anywhere in the Bible. This is, the, this is it. It's the first time. Anytime you see a first usage of any word in the Bible, it's very notable. You pay attention to it. Um, the next time we see this is actually in Genesis 41. Uh, remember, Joseph marries a priest's daughter. He's actually an Egyptian priest, um, uh, Potipharah. But then also obviously you see it continue. Now anyone, if you see someone's last name even to this day, and their last name is like Cohn or Cohen, uh, they are probably they can trace their their ancestry all the way back to being a descendant of Aaron. They may not know it or not, but like one of my, my, my boss's boss's boss, my division president for the company I work for, his last name is Cohn. K-O-H-N, and he's probably descendant of of a Cohen. And he probably just doesn't know it. But it says that um, he was a Kohen of El Elyon, God Most High. So he blessed him with these words. So a Kohen, apparently, according to this, can speak special blessings over someone. And we see this again in Numbers um, chapter 6, don't we? Where it's called the Birkat HaKohanim, the, peer, the blessing of the priests. And we sing that at the end of every Shabbat service that may the Lord bless you and keep you, right? And all that. And we're going to see, it's going to sound a lot like that blessing. But it, this, is, this predates the establishment of the Levitical priestly system, the one that was given at, at, at Sinai, the Mosaic system of worship. This predates that, right? This is a system, this is a, this is a Kohen that, that predates the descendants of Aaron. And that's important that we understand that. Verse 20, here's the priestly blessing he's going to speak over Abraham. He said, blessed be Avram, and it's up there in the original language up there, blessed be Avram by El Elyon, the maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who handed your enemies over to you. Now, this word Baruch, you see it highlighted in yellow there two times, the word Baruch, it actually means like, um, to bend toward, to bend towards, like actually bend the knee toward, Right? Um, that's why if you've ever been a part of our prayer service and you notice a lot of people say, when we always will bow because it literally means we bend ourselves towards you, we bow towards you. So he's saying, blessed be Avram. Right? Blessed be Avram. Now, um, it says that Avram gave him a ma'aser of everything. Which uh, ma'aser is translated, it's hard to translate, hard to pin down, but sometimes people translate it as a tenth. Or sometimes people translate as a tithe, okay? But let's back up before we get into that. Um, we sometimes a lot of people like to ask this question, especially in the Messianic world. People always go, "Who is Melchizedek?" Who? it doesn't say who he was. It's a mystery, right? We get, get into this and all this stuff. And so you get people that say this is Yeshua, a pre-incarnate Yeshua that just appeared, and he happened to be the king and the priest of Shalem. Uh, and we don't really know what happened to him after that. Maybe he, you know, ascended into heaven again. I, you know, that's one of the things they say is that this is. This is, and it comes from Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll we'll go there real quick. If you want to turn to Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, go to Hebrews 6, I'll show you where this kind of stems from, Hebrews 6, and the writer of Hebrews is writing the book to um, Jewish believers, comforting them because they are unable to go up to the temple for whatever reason, either they were banned or the temple was being surrounded by the Roman army, we don't know for sure, but he's basically comforting them and saying that, hey, we have a high priest, he's he's operating in the heavenly realm, and it says, go to to verse 20, so Hebrews 6.20, he says, where a forerunner has entered on our behalf, namely Yeshua, who has become a Kohen, a high priest forever. To be compared with Melchizedek. Now, I like this translation. It says, to be compared with Melchizedek. It doesn't say in the order of Melchizedek. He's, what he's about to do now is he's saying that Yeshua can be compared, that he's kind of like Melchizedek. He's, he's, saying, he's, he's drawing an allegory here. It says, this Melchizedek, the king of Shalem, the high priest of HaElion, he met Abraham on his way back from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And also Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, first of all, by translation of his name, he is the king of righteousness. Then he also is the king of Shalem, which means the king of peace. There is no record of his father, mother, ancestry, birth, or death. Rather, like the Son of God, he continues as a Kohen for all time. Just think of how great he was. Even the patriarch, Avraham, gave him a tenth of his choice of spoils. Now the descendants of Levi, who became priests, have a commandment in the Torah to take a tenth of the income of the people, that is, from their own brothers, despite the fact that they too are descended from Abraham. But Melchizedek, even though he was not descended from Levi, he took a tenth tenth from Abraham. Also, he blessed Abraham, the man who received God's promise. And it is beyond all dispute that the one who blesses has higher status than the one who receives the blessing. Moreover, in the case of the priest, the tenth, the maaser, is received by men who die. While in the case of Melchizedek, it is received by someone who is testified to to, to be still alive. One might go even further and say that Levi, who himself receives tents, he's speaking in present tense here, he's talking about the Levitical priests in the temple, he paid a tent through Avraham, inasmuch as he was still in his ancestor Avraham's body when Melchizedek met him. So what he's doing is he's saying that you you could compare Yeshua to Melchizedek and say like he didn't have... You know, we don't know his, his father, his mother. He, you know, he basically he's pre-existing. It's, it's kind of like the mysterious character that is Melchizedek. We don't know a lot about him. And the best that we can do is speculate. But regardless, even Avraham gave him a tenth of everything, is what he's trying to say. He's not, the writer of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek is Yeshua. Yeshua is Melchizedek. He's just saying the two can be compared. They have a lot of similarities. They're both kings, they're both righteous, they're both princes of peace, and so on. And, and the sons of Abraham and even the Levites bring offerings to him. I tend to believe that Melchizedek is likely Shem, but we, likely the Shem, Shem this, the son of Noah. But I, I don't have a lot of proof. So the point is, we don't need to get hung up on who Melchizedek is. I personally don't believe it's a theophany or a Christophany, like a pre-incarnate Christ. I personally don't believe that. It could be, but it, we don't need to force that into the text right now. The point is, the point is that there was a priest that predated a Levitical priest, and he took a tenth of Abram's possessions, okay? So, yeah? But what's puzzling to me is, how do you explain that he has no genealogy? That the writer of Hebrews is saying, basically, we don't know his genealogy. It's like a mystery. He had genealogy. That's we so just unusual, don't know it. That's so unusual yeah. Hebrews, especially for yeah, yeah. Which is which? The writer of Hebrews is saying that's so unusual that we don't know this. How much more so should we make a comparison between these two characters? Um, but he's not saying that he's like this. You know. Yeah. That's not how I read it, anyways. But if you read it that way, guys, that's totally fine. I respect that. I'm not. I'm not going to hate on you for doing that. But um. Verse 21, oh, let's back up. Verse 20, it says that Avon gave him a maaser of everything. Now, uh, this is, a, we translate it as a tithe. Now, often is the case that in the, um, in the church today, you know, that like people will say that the Torah is done away with, or we, we respect the moral law, but not the civil law, or the ceremonial laws, or anything like that. But that tithe part will keep that, right? <laughs> and and it's, it's kind of funny, but... Um, What is being set here is a precedent that it seems like a tenth of everything, that's money, or that's possessions, or that's your gifts and abilities, a tenth of that is a starting point of what we might call generosity. Now, I cannot stand up here and say with certainty that you all should be giving a tenth of your income, no matter what that is, and be giving it to us as a congregation or whatever. Um, That might be a starting point of your generosity, but to be honest with you, some of you, I would rather you donate your gifts and abilities, your time, and your efforts, your talents, than I would your money. We've never been fixated on money here at our congregation. We've never taken up an offering. We've never collected tithes, and the Lord has always provided. He's always been so faithful to us. We've just never made it something in the forefront of our minds. We're not in debt. We... You know, don't we? All we have to do is keep the lights on and pay for the building, and and it's, the Lord has always blessed us. And and I, I I've been known to say this as well that if if you feel the need to give money to us, great, we love that. That would help us. But if you're up to your ears or eyeballs in debt, high interest debt especially, I'd rather you not give that money to us, but rather pay off that debt. Now, don't don't blow it on a trip to Disney. Pay off the debt. And then maybe you can start giving money to us, okay? Then maybe you can start giving money to us. But I'd rather you get out of enslavement to debt and the debt and the systems of this world, and then be able to get freely in whatever it is that you get. But you, when it says Avram gave everything, Avram didn't just have money. He wasn't just giving money. He was giving everything that he is. Now, personally, I believe, and Scripture says this as well, that you are to be living sacrifices. So often is the case that people write a check for exactly 10%, they put it in a box, and then they go live their lives however they want to live their lives, they put it in a basket, and they live their lives however they want to live their lives. Like, I'd rather you be a living sacrifice and be poor as a joke, and not ever give a dime, but you are a living sacrifice, and you draw others to the Kingdom of God through your sacrificial living. Does that make sense? That's 100%, right? Let's keep going. Uh, verse twenty-one it says the king of Sodom and Avram, um, uh, the king of Sodom said to Avram, "Sorry, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself." But Avram answered the king of Sodom. He said, "I have raised my hand and oath to Adonai, El Elyon, the Maker of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal or or a thong a thong of any anything that is to, a part of a shoe that is yours, so that you won't be able to say that I made Avram rich. Instead, I will take only what my troops have eaten." and the share of the spoil belonging to the men who came with me. Uh, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So in other words, what Avram's doing is saying, I'm more honorable than, than you guys are. <laughs> now he's not just coming out and saying that, but he's, he's showing that. That in other words, I want to become wealthy and prosperous because of the gifts that El Elyon, the Lord, has given me. Not because I subjugated people like you guys have a habit of doing God forbid. And I hope that it's, it's your prayer that you guys will be in a position where if your employer, your boss or whoever asks you to do something that's dishonorable but, you're, but you have the potential to make a lot of money in doing so, that you have, you have the courage and, and the faithfulness to stand up and say, no, thank you. I'm going to be faithful to my God. I don't want to get rich through the subjugation or gain whatsoever, anything whatsoever through the subjugation and exploitation of other human beings. You got me? Do what is righteous. Do what's honorable. In a world that is so full of wickedness and um, and, and, and people being cutthroat and people subjugating other people and people um, idolizing victimhood and idolizing knowledge and power and status, be someone that has credibility, trustworthiness, and honor. That is the ultimate commodity of this world. When everything else goes to pot and everything else crumbles around you and around us, people will look at you and say, you're a person that when you say you're going to do something, you do it. I'm going to trust you. When you say you're going to come through for me and you come through for me, I'm going to trust you. You're a person of honor and integrity. Be that person. Be that person that believes in what they say and has the actions to back it up. It takes a lot of courage to say that, doesn't it? Okay, chapter 15. We've we got about 15 minutes. We're going to get through 15 in 15 minutes. Verse 1. Sometime later, the word of Adonai came to Avram in a Hazeh, a vision. He said, don't be afraid, Avram, for I am your magin me'od, your shield, your great shield, your powerful shield, and your, and, and your sakar. Sakar is like your, your paycheck. Your wages will be very great. Avram replied, Adonai, don't God. What good will your gifts be to me if I continue childless? And Eleazar from, Damasef, from Damascus inherits my possessions. You haven't even given me a child. And Avram continued. So someone will be born in my house. They will be my heir. Now, did God like blow at him here and say, like, how dare you challenge me? Right? No, God is God is merciful with him. He says, but the word of Adonai came to him. He said, this man will not be your heir. No. Your heir will be a child from your own body. And then he brought him outside and said, Look up at the Shemaim at the heavens. He says, And count the Kokav. The Kokavs are the stars. If you can even count them. Right? We're still, with all the technology we have today, and exploration we have today, we're still counting stars. Think about that. He says, Your descendants will be that many. Now this is also a hint at something. If you go to Numbers chapter 24 real fast, go to Numbers 24, Bamidbar 24, Bamidbar 24, and then in verse 15, Numbers 24, 15, He says, this is, um, this is the, the false prophet Bilam, and he's, um, he's the prophet for hire. This is his final prophecy. Remember, he was hired by Balak to speak a curse over the people of Israel. And he, remember, he goes, I can only say what, what, what Adonai tells me to say. So he made this pronouncement. This is the final pronouncement. He says, this is the speech of Bilam, the son of the Or, the speech of the man whose eyes have been opened. And the speech of him who hears God's word, who knows what, said, what what Elyon knows, who sees what Shaddai sees, who has fallen, yet has open eyes. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not soon. What does he say? A kokav, a star, will come forth from Yaakov. A scepter will arise in Israel to crush the corners of Moab and destroy the descendants of Sheth. His enemies will be his possessions, Edom and Seir. His possessions, Israel will do valiantly. From Yaakov will come someone who will rule, and he will destroy what is left of the city. So, who is he prophesying about there? He's prophesying about the snake crusher, right? Remember Genesis chapter three, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He's talking about that. He's speaking. He's speaking prophetically about the coming of Mashiach. Go with, go with me to Matthew two two. Matthew two two. Matthew 2, verse 2. It says, "Where is After Yeshua was born in the land of Yehudah, during the time of when Herod was king, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, the and they asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? For we saw his what? Star in the east, and have come to worship him. So the star is like a code word for the snake crusher that was promised to us back in Genesis 3, right? So it says, that Count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be that many. He believed in Adonai, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am Adonai who brought you out of ur Kastin to give you this land as a yarash, inheritance. He replied, Adonai, God, how am I to to know that I will possess it? And he answered him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, he cut the animals in two, and placed the pieces opposite of each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. The birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. There's a lot of deep symbolism going on here, which we don't have time to get into today. But if you want to really geek out on this, and there's a lot of prophetic significance going on here, um, um, I can point you in the right direction with some good resources. Verse 12, As the sun was about to set, a Tardema came over Avram. Now, when was the first time, we, the only other time we see a Tardema? Does anyone remember? Adam. Adam, Adam was put into a Tardema Ooh. when Eve was pulled out of his side, right? Anesthesia. Yeah, it's like a divine anesthesia. And a Tardema fell on Avram, and an Emma, and great darkness came over him. Emma is like a great horror. Why why would God put him in a tardema and then show him a great horror? here, I'm going to give you this terrible nightmare. What on earth? You see, Abraham, I believe, was being shown that his descendants in this nation that would come from Avram would be a subject of irritation and hatred for all other nations, which are opposed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was being shown prophetically that there would be an alliance of nations all through the span of human history that would come against his seed and try to crush his seed. So he was being shown things like, like the, Macca- the, the, the um, Antiochus Epiphanes, being shown things like the Roman expulsion of the Jews, being shown things like the Holocaust. And we don't have time to get into it today, but if you want to look at, um, write down Psalm 83 and Ezekiel thirty eight speak of these uh, the, the alliance of the nations that, that all through history opposed the seed of Abraham. Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38. It's a ten-nation conspiracy that it constantly are, are const, constantly um, uh, irritating and frustrating the people of Israel and Abraham's seed. So let's keep going. And Adonai said to Abram know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land. That is not theirs. They will be slaves and held in oppression there for 400 years. But they will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves. And afterwards they will leave with many possessions. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at an old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here, because only then will the emory be right for punishment. And after the sun had set and there was thick darkness, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared which passed between these animal parts, which is basically God um, uh, being made manifest on earth and passing through these parts. Um, and it says, That day Adonai made a breach with Avram. Now this is the very, uh, actually this is um, not the first time we see the brit, but this is the second breach we see being made with a human being between God and, and a human. A breach it's, it's a very important biblical concept that you understand what a breach is. A brit is uh, like it's a cutting of something. It's a covenantal uh, contract between two parties. That I will be there for you and you will be there for me. It's closer than family even. Closer than kin. Alright? A brit. Now there's five main uh, covenants in scripture that you want to be cognizant of. Okay? Five main covenants. And these covenants are are stages of God's revelation to humanity. Okay? He's going to use covenants... To, um, to show how he plans to save the world through his mercy and through his love. And they are the following. The Noahide covenant that he made with Noah. The, there's the Abrahamic covenant, covenant, which we are seeing right here. Then there's the Davidic covenants, I'm sorry, back up. The Mosaic covenant. The Davidic covenants, And then the what we call the Brit Hadashah. The renewed or new covenant. That's detailed and Jeremiah 31. These five covenants are so important and if you if you know that's kind of the outline of the biblical narrative, you'll be able to better understand God's redemptive plan for humanity through these people and through these covenants. I like to say that they are like, picture a tree. If I were to get the whiteboard and draw a tree, I was going to do that but I don't have time today. Draw a tree. I'm just going to start with just a, a tree that doesn't have any leaves. It's just a bare tree. It looks dead, okay, but it's there. That would be like the Noahide covenant and then I start drawing some little buds and leaves that are starting to pop out that would be like the Abrahamic covenant okay and then I start to draw some fruit and I draw some flowers and you know eventually I get to the point where this thing is covered with greenery and fruit are just hanging from this tree which I'm very intentional about saying fruit hanging from a tree and there's birds that are nesting in it it's like every covenant is adding a layer to this idea and this understanding of who God is and his plan to save humanity. Does that make sense? Yeah. These five covenants are the outline of that. It's like remember the old transparencies where if you were in your um, your anatomy physiology class in high school and the teacher put a transparency on the thing and it projected it up on the wall. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah. A little clear plastic thing. And then she's like, okay, hey, that's your muscular, or that's your skeletal system. And then she or he puts another transparency on there, and it's like here's your muscular system, and then here's your um, you know, it keeps going and going and adding, it's like that. That's, that's how covenants work in a way. And it says, here's, here's one of the, the terms of this covenant that God's giving Avram. I have given this land to your descendants from the Vadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the territory of the Kani, the Kenazi, and the Kedmoni, the Hitti, and the Perizzi, the Rephaim, the Emori, the Kana'ani, and the Gergashi, and the Yevusi. So in other words, he's saying, here are the boundaries of the land that your descendants will possess, okay? Here are the physical boundaries. Nations always tend to be um, correlated around physical geographical features, that on a map. What's fascinating about this, there's another Abrahamic faith that claims to be descendants of Avram, both in faith and in ethnicity, in DNA. And that faith is the face of, of uh, the faith of Islam. They study the Quran, right? And they, they worship Allah, they follow the Prophet Muhammad. there's five pillars in the faith of Islam, just like there's five covenants in the Torah, in the Bible. Now this is a false religion. I'm not scared to say that. It's a false faith. But what's interesting about it is that Islam is about world domination. It's about spreading out and dominating the world and creating a caliphate that covers the globe. Right? It's about subjugation. And if you don't want to convert, if you don't, if you don't want to say the uh, shahada, the prayer of confession, all right, that's fine. you got to pay the tax. We're going to subjugate you. Just like the kings, right? Now what's interesting about the God of the Bible and about our faith is that there's limits and borders. And and rather, rather it's all, instead of going out and subjugating the world, it's about creating a border and there being a righteous king in that border and all the nations being invited to it to pay homage to that king. See the difference there? It's an invitation rather than a subjugation the key difference between those two fates. That's important we understand that. Now, at the end of the story here, Avram and Sarah, they get pregnant, and they have a baby. Abraham is completely faithful to this. He doesn't doubt God in the next chapter, and everything is happily ever after, right? (laughs) What did I say? It's like every other chapter. There's a high point in Abram's life. He was heroic in battle. He was valiant. He went and saved the day. He saved his kinsmen. He made this amazing covenant with God. He met Melchizedek, who is to remind us of and be a prophetic picture of the high priest that is Yeshua. And it's like, okay, everything's good. No. If you read on ahead, Abraham, now it's time for a doubt. And I can't say this often enough that That is a very human condition in our hearts that you and I will at times doubt God's providence in our lives. And it's what you do in those times of doubt that make a world of difference. And we're going to see Avraham makes a decision here. He seizes some fruits that he should not have seized, and it creates a lot of problems, doesn't it? Let's, uh, let's close in prayer, and we'll take five minutes and do a Q&A. Father, I thank you for your word that it's true even to this day, and that it's timeless. And it speaks to the condition and depravity of mankind. We thank you that your promises are true, both to the people and the seed of Abraham. And that we too are, are sons and daughters of Abraham. And we can share in this legacy. We can share in these moments of intense faithfulness and righteousness, but also experience moments of doubt but it's in those moments of doubt, Father, that you come to us and reach down to us and show us your presence. We thank you for Yeshua, the snake crusher that was promised to us. We look back knowing his name, knowing he is our high priest, and we thank you for that gift of salvation. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.